go. It's hiding. Just a moment, we'll be in John chapter number 6. John chapter number 6. We'll share some passages with you before we get there. John chapter number 6, though, you can find your scriptures there. That would be wonderful. And one last announcement, too. Let me remind you, on Sunday night, it is teen night. And so the teens will be ministering to us. And so we're looking forward to that. That's coming Sunday night. If you need an outline, Brother Doug's in the middle aisle. He'll make his way down the middle aisle. We'd love for you to follow along with us. Uh, message simply entitled, I Am, and the Alpha and Omega, and uh, kind of carrying on from last week as we talked about the names of Christ, or names of God, excuse me, and uh, so this is kind of like a follow-up to that, and trust to be encouraging, challenging to us all at the same time. If you need an outline, see Brother Doug in the middle, that would be wonderful. Exodus chapter 3, verse number 14, familiar passage, you probably, uh, maybe most of you immediately thought of it when you read the, the title of the message, and uh, there it says this, and God said unto Moses, I am am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And here, this is, uh, shall we say, when the floodgates are open. As far as this name of God, um, and from that moment forward, really, for God's followers, that title, that name of God has meant much uh, to us. He, he is the great I am. And uh, as Moses, you know the story, he stood there, he took his sandals off, he stands before the burning bush, and God is calling him now after uh, 40 years in the wilderness, basically learning he's nothing, and uh, now he's, gonna about to, he's about to find out that God is everything that you can imagine he is. And so this is a great introduction for Moses, uh, opening up those, those floodgates for him to realize, wow, my God is the great I am. And God says, you tell him I, the great I am. The only God, the, the one who created all, you tell them that I sent you. Now that seems open-ended, doesn't it? I am, okay? Uh, what kid hasn't dreamed, what child hasn't dreamed, not the kid, the goat, but the child, um, hasn't, uh, hasn't dreamed of going into a toy store or some store, and mom and dad said what? Or a grandparent, pick whatever you want. In fact, pick multiple things of what you want. Yeah, as you probably experienced, if you've ever seen that, the kid has great indecision, amen? It's an open-ended invitation. May I just tell you right now, what I love about this name is that it is not as specific. It is open-ended in some ways. We'll see some ways that, that God, in a sense, himself adds to it. But um, I believe that's what he indicated and what this name means. It is an open-ended. Tell them that I am sent you. And what? Well, History will tell us what he is. The times before where Moses is in this moment, and the, the times of Abraham, and the times of Noah, and the times of Adam, that, that informs us what the I am is. It defines it, if we might put it that way. Paul would capture it well later on. New Testament, if we could say, okay, Paul, would you explain it in modern vernacular, modern terminology of the first century, how would you describe it? Well, he, he kind of did so for us in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things, and I love this statement, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Man, what a great statement. 
It really is. That's Paul's uh, New Testament after Christ and after the Old Testament kind of description. It, it is a name, the I am, is a name that you and I can add any positive characteristic, any positive description, any positive adjective to it, and it will describe our God. We could say, boy, God is faithful. He is. He, is. he can say, I am faithful. We can say that he is a preserver, and we can say God is the I am preserver. We can add every adjective, every you name it, whatever, description, characteristic, and that's exactly what it, was, what it is and what it describes God when he says, I am. In our modern kind of uh, terminology or our modern language, it, we would say it parallels. Have you, ever, have you ever heard somebody describing maybe a manual or describing something else that says, or a store maybe, it says it has everything from A to Z. Yeah, that's a description that describes thoroughness or completeness or uh, just the reality that it encompasses everything. And the reality is we could say that's kind of like the name I am for God. It really encompasses much of who he is. And that's why as we study the scripture, boy, does it creep up throughout the scripture. If history could speak for us tonight, it would find and we would find that Throughout the history of the Jews and the early church, this name became highly revered, respected, honored. In fact, it was much a name that they knew Jehovah by. Their Jehovah God that had spoken to Abraham, that had led Moses uh, to lead the deliverance from Egypt. Uh, uh, the same God, Jehovah, that led Joshua and their, er, their earlier um, uh, family into the promised land and uh, brought them to, that was the great I am. I am the fulfiller of promises. I am your banner, as we saw last week. We could add much to it, but that's why it became so revered, why the Jews uh, looked to it. And, and here in this moment, really, if you think about it, and I think this is another reason that that name is so uh, greatly endeared to the, the Jews, why they, they love it, and, and we'll see so here, even with Christ, they were very protective of that name, I am. You say, why? Well, I think one of the reasons is because it, it, it occurs first in this beginning of a new chapter for Israel. This is a big event. Here is Moses being spoke to by God. God saying, go take, go, go get those Israelites. Bring them out of Egypt to a land that I have promised them. And I will be with you every step of the way. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. I will fight for you. And this began, as we could describe, the next chapter in the history of Israel. And as God spoke to Moses and said, I am the great I am. Moses obeyed. Uh, and what happens? Well, may I just say it this way? The great I am showed up for Israel. Through those plagues and through everything that transpired afterwards and the Red Sea and the times in the wilderness and then as they entered the promised land, the reality is this. What just happened, what we see is this. God showed up. The whole world, Egypt, the Jews, and the whole known world came to know that he is the great I am. Do you remember when they arrived in the promised land? The stories were still making the rounds. This was a big deal, what had happened in Egypt. And people are still, even 40 years later, a generation later, the stories are still going around in the land of Canaan of what happened in Egypt. This God of the Israelites, the I am God, had done to the greatest nation at that time, the Egyptians. This was a big deal. 
God was certainly showing himself as such. And so we can understand why this name has become so well known and honored for Jehovah among the Jews and his followers. Then what happens? Well, we have Christ come on the scene. And it isn't long before Jesus Christ himself uh, identifies himself with this name, this revered and honored name, this, this one held in great esteem. And we find that to be the case in several passages through the New Testament. So kind of to begin our study tonight, let's look at that. And uh, we, we've entitled this, number one, I am. What is the significance of Christ's statements? He makes several statements that are correlated uh, to this thought of being the I am. Look with me, John chapter 6, we're here. And we'll just read one simple verse, but notice it, verse 20 of John chapter 6. But he saith unto them, that's the disciples, it is I be not afraid, okay? It is I, be not afraid. This is a variation of the I am declaration, if we could describe it. But nonetheless, it is a declaration of who he is. It goes well beyond uh, more than arriving on the scenes. The, the disciples are in the boat. You remember the storm comes up, and the waves are tossing them and, and to and fro. They don't think they're going to make it. They're very fearful at this moment. And here comes Christ, and one of the great miracles, this is the one where, where Christ comes to them. This is not when Peter walks on water or anything like that, but he comes in the boat, and the next thing they know, they're at shore. I don't know about you, but there's many a journey I've taken that I wish I could do that. We're at the end of it. Amen? Ah, road trips, you name it, whatever the case may be. That would be wonderful. Just to, hey, that's what happened here. And they were immediately, the Bible says, at the shore. Well, remember, he comes to them and he declares himself. He says, I am he. I, I am, and, or uh, it is I, excuse me, it is I. Be not afraid. Certainly, you see in this reality here, when he says, it is I, it is a declaration of who he is, and don't miss this, where he is. You see, when Christ came to him, he said, it is I. Man, don't you love those times when we hear God declare in your life, it is I. I'm here. It is I. I'm walking through the valley with you. I'm going through the storm with you. See, there's two things that he declares in this simple statement of saying, it is I, which is uh, certainly a derivative or a correlated to the I am statements of God. First is this, let me back up here, his authority over every event, circumstance, and other power or force. He, he, he has established it. He, he, he declares, if we might put it this way. Yeah, you realize in this simple statement, he says, the, that storm is no match for me. Those waves that are tipping the boat and making it maybe shake left and right. And then, I don't know, disciples are there. I don't know if we have any here that get uh, seasick. Ever been on a boat and it starts going topsy-turvy? You can imagine among the disciples, there had to be one or two that were probably like that. And they're maybe hanging over there. And that, that storm is just shaking them back and forth, tossing them to and fro. And those waves are maybe coming into the boat. And, and you can imagine what that would have been like. And yet, you know what? You know what God says in this, what Jesus Christ states? I am God, and these winds and waves are no match for me. It is I. I am. I, I can handle this. I'll take care of this. But aren't you thankful for the times that God uh, says to us in our lives, and it's often in the midst of a storm, he simply says, it is I, your great I am is here. You know what, it may be simply through the scriptures, you and I are reading, and we are reminded, and, and that comfort comes, and the peace that passes understanding floods our heart, because God's from heaven says, listen, I, I'm right here with you, it is I, your great I am is here with you, 
Maybe it's through the Holy Spirit. And what a joy it is for you and I as believers to, to be in touch and commune with the Holy Spirit that indwells us, that in our prayer times, in our Bible reading, in those still small moments of uh, maybe when we can get away from the distractions of life, the speed and the hurry of life, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us. We can sense the very presence of God within as the Holy Spirit ministers to us in one way or the other. And my friend, that is just simply God saying, it is I. Your great I am is here. And then certainly other times, it's just God himself impressing upon our hearts, you are not alone. It is I. Your great I am is here with you. You see, in these simple moments here, and you know, he says, it is I. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Isn't it reassuring to hear the voice of our God? Through his word, through prayer, through the ministering of the Holy Spirit. And, and you know what he's conveying to us in that and what his voice means. Now think about it. Okay, It is the exact same thing as we have talked about. Um, when a parent, <laughs> there's a child scared of a storm or scared of the dark. And the parent just shows up at the door and the parent speaks into the room. Hey, honey. It's okay, I'm here. And boy, what a difference that makes for a young child. The reassuring voice of mom or dad standing at the door, and, and for that child, you know what that means? Whew, mom and dad are here, and they have it under control. Now listen, praise God, it won't be 20-something years till they realize mom and dad have no control over it. We can't do it. Well, we can give a hug. We can throw on an extra blanket. We can come and give uh, consoling words or whatever the case may be. But you and I don't. But boy, is that not reassuring to a child? And how much more for you and I when we're in a dark time, in a storm, and God speaks to us through his word or impresses upon our heart through the Holy Spirit, and he simply says to you and I, hey, it is I. Your great I am is here. Don't be afraid. My friend, that ought to reassure you and I. It ought to be that assurance, okay, he has authority over everything. He is the I am. As much as he exerted his authority and power over Egypt, the Red Sea, and all of the wilderness, and all those nations within the, the promised land, the land of Canaan, so my God has authority over every circumstance in my life, no matter what it might be. And so I love hearing my God say, it is I, I am here. Secondly, and some of you who are quick, you already saw it. He alone is the remedy to all fear. He alone is the remedy to all. It is I, be not afraid. When he's on the scene, you and I have nothing to fear. And, and uh, a simple correlation to that statement, it is I. He's saying, oh, you got nothing to fear, I'm here. <laughs> when he's on the scene, we have nothing to fear. And uh, the psalmist understood it. He made this resolution. You, you would know it well. Many of you have shared it with your own children probably. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Okay, Psalm 56, 3, just a, just a resolution. Now, this resolution uh, displays itself, or we might describe it as such. It, uh, it, the outcome of this personal resolution is found in the next verse. In God, I will praise his word. Uh, in God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. So my trust in my God who is present, ever present, my, my trust in my God who says, it is I and I am your great I am. Then my resolution, boy, when I'm afraid, I'm going to trust in him. As I trust in him and who he is and his promised presence, then I will not be afraid. 
I will face whatever it is. I will go toe-to-toe with every situation, every circumstance, every bad news, whatever the case may be. I'll, I'll go toe-to-toe because his presence, uh, the presence of our great I am, removes all fear. It's the remedy to fear. And that is simply what Christ was even saying to these disciples. There is much to be said in each of these statements where Christ says, I am, or it is I. I am he, as we'll see here in a moment. Turn with me, if you will. Let's go to over to John, John chapter 8. We're in John 6. We're just over a couple chapters, if you will. John chapter 8. We'll read a pretty lengthy passage here, verses 23 and following. Okay, this is a, 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 a kind of <laughs> an interesting little passage here too. But we pick up verse 23. And he saith unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. Verse 24, John chapter 8. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am, in our King James translator, add the word he for clarification, I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Verse 25, Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus saith unto them, even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. Are you not listening? You can kind of read into that. I have many things to say and to judge of you. But he that sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am, again, same statement here, I am he, And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me, and the Father hath not left me alone. For I I do always those things that please him. I love verse 30. This was a convincing, convincing statement by Christ. A convincing interaction. And as he spake these words, isn't this great to hear? Many believed on him. Man, it's a convicting message. Yeah, and you and I may read like, oh, okay, it's, it doesn't seem like, no. He, he was making a twofold clarifying identification. They were wondering, who are you? Who are you, they asked. Who do you think you are? Who do you claim to be? Who are you? And boy, does he answer it. The first one is simply this. He is indeed the Messiah. He is the promised one. And with that being established, there's an invitation to come trust in him. And boy, we read verse 30, guess what? that clarification elicited faith in him by some of them that were listening to his words. They believed on him, the Savior, uh, so that they wouldn't, as he put it, die in their sins. I love that. And Jesus Christ comes and he says, you don't know who I am. I'm the Messiah. And I've told you from the beginning that if you don't trust in me, if you don't believe that I am, I'm God. And I am he. I'm the Messiah. If you don't believe, then you will die in your sins. I mean, I love verse 30. He says, many of them believed, trusted in Christ. And what a great truth. What a great reality that we see coming from this thought. Believe on him. Secondly, not only was he declaring and, and uh, this clarifying identification, declaring that he was the Messiah, he's also declaring, number two, that he is God. It wasn't by accident he said, I am. I am he. He's declaring himself to be God. Uh, Verses 28 and 29, he he gives a little bit of a clear or or a description of how he is working with the Father, the Father working with him, and that interaction, that that close relationship. 
He's also had already told them in verses 18 and 19, if you'll look, notice what he said. I am the one to bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Verse 19, then said they unto him, where is thy father? They're not catching it. Jesus answereth, ye neither know me nor my father. Now notice his statement, if ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. So it's getting to the point they're starting to realize, wait a minute, you're, you're talking about God the Father. You're talking about our Heavenly Father, Jehovah. You're talking about the great I Am. That's who you're talking about. And you're declaring to be equal with Him? And once it's established that He too is God, whoa, 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 you're saying you're the Son of God, and as the Son of God, you're God yourself. And, and that puts it on a level of equality, as you see here in our statement. This is a statement of equality. There's another passage that is similar to this, and I love this passage. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 18, okay? John chapter 18. We're going to look at a few different passages tonight and just to see how this name plays out, how, how God, uh, Jesus Christ, is established, building off of this revered name. But John chapter 18, notice, if you will, verses 5 and 6. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas and the, the soldiers have come. There's quite a large band that have come to take him. Verse number four, Jesus therefore knowing all the things that should come upon him went forth and said unto them, who seek ye? Who are you looking for? Look at verse five. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto him, notice the statement, I am he. And Judas also which betrayed him stood with them. And verse 6 is one of the most amazing statements, I think, Then, just kind of like, hey, listen, you would not be able to do this. Nothing that transpires from here on out would be done unless God in heaven allows it. Notice verse 6. As soon as then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. What an amazing event. I, I, this is one of those, man, we sure would love to be there to see what happens. They come to arrest him, Jesus of Nazareth. That's who they think he is. This is an imposter, a blasphemer. This is some guy claiming to be Christ, and we've got to take care of him. We've got to do something with him. And in their mind, he is just Jesus of Nazareth, but he is so much more. And in his simple statement, he declares it to be so. I am. And as they take him from meeting, obviously, oh, this is just, he's just telling us he's Jesus. The reality is this, I, <laughs> his declaration, I, as soon as he says, I am he, what happens? Well, the Bible says they, they're blown backwards and they fall to the ground. And I don't know about you, but I've seen uh, sometimes a Hollywood depiction when a superhero does something and all these people fly everywhere. I don't know exactly what happened, but this I do know. Listen to me very carefully. When they did not realize that he was indeed the Son of God and did not fall to their feet to worship him as he deserved, the very name I am took care of it. And in that moment, God himself in heaven established, hey, remember what I said just a few years before, that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And you will not touch him unless I allow it. And my, what a sight that would have been. It may have been a just simple reminder to his disciples, and I can just imagine maybe in that moment Jesus Christ turns and, and looks at his disciples just to remind them, listen, guys, if I wanted to, if God wanted to, none of this would happen. But this is the will of the Father, and this is my will. I want it done. It must be done. For you and I to taste and enjoy heaven 
Jesus Christ had to go to the cross. But in this simple moment, he is seen for who he is. <laughs> I, I, could you imagine if they got off all the ground? like, you go get him. No, you go get him. I ain't talking, you go get him. <laughs> like, who's going to go and play? And certainly we know he surrendered himself. Willingly he went. Another great manifestation and a display of the reality that oh, he is God. He is the I am. Uh, we go on. There's two, and you were probably already thinking of them. Some of you were. There, there's two statements found in Scripture or two uh, claims made by Christ of himself being the great I am that we find in Scriptures. You, you don't get any clearer than these. And, and the ones we've seen already, a little hidden or, or maybe uh, into the story some. But here's two that are clear as day. Notice with me John chapter 8. We go back to John chapter 8, just a few chapters back. We pick up in verse 51. Notice it. He's going back and forth with the Jews, okay? This is a, this is a very combative and um, uh, intense situation here going on. We pick up in verse 51, notice it. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, now we know that thou hast a devil. Now, let's stop there a second because I, the, the, you want some cultural insight. In this passage, you get it. The Jews, they were angry with Christ. They, they wanted to denounce him. They wanted to attack him. They, they, they disdained him. And so what happens often when you're in an argument or a disagreement, you start to lose. Uh, I often tell um, young people, you know you're losing an ar argument when you attack the person instead of the subject. It's a, it's a true um, thing of debate and so forth. You know that you're losing if someone starts attacking you instead of addressing the subject at hand, okay? And that's what they do here. They, they, they truly do. And what they do is they, they, they lower themselves to insults. So think in that day, uh, what, what could be the worst insults? Well, for a Jew, calling someone a devil, that's a pretty low insult. The second one, what do you think it would be? Calling somebody a Samaritan. And that's what they did. They called Jesus Christ a Samaritan early on in this passage, and uh, they, they basically called him, hey, we've called you a Samaritan, we've called you a devil already, and, and they're just leveling insults, and so they do it again in this passage. You, wait a minute, whoa, if any man keeps your saying, he shall never see death, you're just a devil. Notice it. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead, whom, <laughs> whom makest thou thyself? Okay. Now, let's also take this. They're, uh, understand this. They're, they're reestablishing. They're the father of, or their father is Abraham. Verse 44 of the same chapter. Do you remember what Christ said to them? You are of your father the devil. So already you can see, man, it's going. And so they, here they try to reestablish. Oh, no, no, Abraham's our father is what they, they try to say. The prophets are dead. Whom makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art yet fifty years old, or not yet, excuse me, fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, notice it, before Abraham was, I am. And my friend, that pushed it over it. For them and their ears, that, that just pushed it over. Look at verse 49. Then took they up stones to cast at him. 
But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. This is a huge going on. They're blown away. They're worked up over what Christ was saying. As he'd already told them, they are their father, the devil. Now they accuse him of being a devil. They insult him by calling him a Samaritan. It's intense. It's combative. And then he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Now, whoa, what are you talking about? Our father Abraham rejoiced to see your day. You're not even 50 years old. Who are you to say that Abraham rejoices that? They were livid at his seeming pride. And then he says what? Before Abraham was. I am. Not I was. Not I was around. I was here. No, 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 no. I am. Clearly establishing and connecting himself to Jehovah God. Establishing that he is indeed God. You know what happens? As we would say, that them they are fighting words, right? That, that's what the Jews did. Let's pick up stones. We're going after him. No more talk with this guy. You can't reason with him. He thinks he's Jehovah. He thinks he is God himself. They couldn't take it anymore. They pick up their stones. There's a second passage in which we see the same thing. Again, you can't get any clearer in Christ's declaration of who he is. Look with me in Mark chapter 14. Okay, Mark chapter 14. We go back a few pages here to Mark chapter 14. We'll pick up in verse 61. Mark is accounting here for us of his appearance before the high priest. And so these are Jews. And uh, these are his own kind. He's appearing before the high priest. And we come to verse 61. And, and uh, the high priest has spoken to him and said, Answer thou nothing? What is it which these, wit- or, or excuse me, what is it which these witnesses against thee? You answer nothing about it? Verse 21, 61, excuse me. But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and, and to buffet him and to say unto him, Prophesy! And the servant did strike him and with the palms of their hands. My friends, here we are. Again, he's already through the garden. He's already st- this is the culmination in some ways to the Jews. He is making sure there's no question as to who he is claiming to be, who he was. The high priest couldn't believe it. To him, this was pure blaspheme. Uh, this was punishable by death in their minds. This is condemn him to death. Did you hear what he said? He said he's the I am. They were so angry. What, what did they re, uh, result in? Physical assault. Hitting him and smiting him. Well, prophesy, if you're that, if you're God, tell us who hit you. Uh, I mean, can, the disdain, the hatred, the, uh, the great dislike for sure that is present. When you and I read this passage, there's no room for discussion in these other passages of what Christ repeatedly claimed to be. Even the actions of the Jews, and I I would say this, well, you know, some people, well, you're you're, you're misunderstanding Christ's word. No, 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 listen to me. The very reaction of the Jews tells us what he was claiming to be. 
They understood perfectly. They, they grasp, he's claiming to be the I am, the Jehovah. He's God. He's the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. But he is God. He is the son of God. He's all those things. He claims to be him. And so in their minds, they, they understood what he was doing. And that name, the I am, was only reserved for Jehovah God. And here's what's interesting. A few minutes we have left. When he came to earth, when Jesus did, he readily identified himself as the great I am. He returned to heaven, and so we come to the next time that Jesus Christ is coming back to earth, his second coming. And what's amazing is that we get into the book of Revelation, we find the same title for God, the I am, but it appears in, in a couplet uh, of a name for God. In fact, it occurs four times. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. We'll start out in Revelation chapter number 1. So this is interesting. We, we see that uh, I am, is, is certainly as God established with Moses and introduced himself in some ways to Moses, and that was conveyed to the nation of Israel that the great I am. Jesus Christ came. He identified himself as the great I am. He was rejected by Israel for such blasphemy uh, and uh, uh, just pushed off, rejected because of it. Now we come to Revelation, and Christ is once again going to be presented to you and I as the I am, but it's coupled with something. Look at verse number 8, if you will, with me. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Boy, some of your Bibles would have there in the Almighty. Can't help, help but think of Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, right? And the mighty is the Almighty. And so here's the proclamation. Look at verse 11. We jump down there, verse number 11, same chapter, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in the book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Jump ahead to chapter 21. We go to the end of the book, chapter 21, Revelation chapter 21. Look at verse number 6. This is a great statement here at the end of the book. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. We jumped ahead to chapter 22. We look at verse number 13, if you will, with me. The last occurrence that we find here, he says this, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Real quick, what we want to see here, you see at number two on our outline, Alpha. What is the significance of Christ's name? Okay? In, three of the first, in three of the four verses we just read, at least, the name Alpha is correlated to what? The beginning. Uh, it's described as such. And what that is saying, we don't have time to delve into it greatly, but essentially he's being established as what? The, the beginning of creation, both physically and spiritually. He is the first cause of creation. He is the ruler of creation. All wrapped up into this one name. I am Alpha and Omega. So I am, I, I am I'm the great I am. But I am also Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning of all things. I'm the cause of all things. I'm the creator of all things. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, if you want to glance back there, he is referred to as the beginning of the creation of God. Now, in the English, that's a little of a difficult statement. A lot of people like to look at this and say, well, look, he's the beginning of, creation, of the creation of God. And they like to say, hey, look, Jesus Christ was created. My friend, can I just tell you that's not at all what it says. 
Uh, here in our English translation or in the original, that's the, you can get farther from the reality of what it says. The, the original text lend no credence whatsoever or validity to it. See, that verse in, in, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, uh, I always like reading where people say and where they try to twist Scripture. If you look at it, it identifies Christ as three different things. The first is this, he's the great amen. He's the great all men. Secondly, he is a faithful witness. He is the, uh, the full term is the faithful and true witness. And then he makes that statement. He is the, uh, the beginning of the creation of God. Literally what that is saying, he's the cause of God's creation both physically and spiritually. He is the one who formed it. In fact, the Greek word translated there as creation is literally the idea of forming, he, formation. He is the one that forms it. You know what the verse is simply saying? As we well know, who was present at creation? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three were part of it. In many ways, you can see Christ, God the Son, handiwork in creation. He was responsible for creation. That's what the verse is saying, and you see it on our outline here. He is responsible for the creation of all things physically. And so when we read he is the alpha, he is the cause of creation, he is the ruler of all creation, uh, he is the, uh, the creating power behind creation, but also spiritually. And I think in context, especially Revelation chapter 3 and the following passages and, and even chapter 2 going on, what do we see it talked about? The churches. Church of Laodicea, this church, and this church, and this church. Who established the churches? Jesus Christ did. He created the church. Who's the church? Not buildings. It is you and I who are new creatures in who? Christ. He created us. And so he is the alpha. He is the, uh, we, another terminology would be what? Well, Paul likes to use it a lot. He is the first fruits right of all those who'll be resurrected of those who believed and so forth jesus christ is that and so this term alpha speaks to that but it's not just that it is also this truth notice it he is not only the beginning of all things he is first among all things that's that term alpha as we see it look again at revelation chapter 22 and 13 if you stayed here notice it i am alpha and omega the beginning and end and this is what he says the first and the last he is the first He's not only the beginning, but he's also the first. It is a, a different Greek word. You know what it means, and I love this. It means first in time and place, the first in rank. So when we hear him described as Jesus Christ, the Alpha, my friend, he is the beginning of everything, and he is first of all things. If we could put it this way, I, I like this. It uh, simply means this. He was first at the first, and he will always be. When you and I read and we see and we decry that our, our, or we cry that our Savior is the Alpha, man, He is the beginning of all things and He is the first of all things. We, we know what this term means. He is the preeminent one. He has priority number one. He is overall, above all, superior to all. He is the Alpha. Now, isn't this funny? Because this term has become synonymous with the leader of the pack. When uh, I don't know about you, I like watching uh, documentaries of nature and so forth. But whenever I watch the documentary about a wolf or bears and bear pack or wolf pack, they always describe one mean old grizzly bear or one mean old wolf that is the alpha. And often they'll say alpha male. They'll throw it together, right? And, he, and others will challenge him, and he either beats him down or the other one beats him, and, and then they become the alpha, right? The leader of the pack. 
Now listen, that is a humanly speaking, but can I tell you, when you and I read in Revelation that our God, our Jesus Christ, our Savior is the Alpha, my friend, he leads the pack. He is the Alpha. He is priority number one. He is above all things, and yet he is the beginning of all things. He is the, uh, what is Revelation all about? Well, Revelation is about Jesus Christ being recognized as Alpha and being recognized by all as such. What does Revelation hold? Oh, certainly the promise of heaven. Certainly being free of sin and death and these things. The new heaven and the new earth. That's all wonderful. But for you and I as believers who live in the shadow of a culture that refuses to recognize Jesus Christ for who he is. May I tell you one of the great promises of Revelation is simply this. Every knee shall bow. He is Alpha. And he will be recognized as such. It is the name that name Alpha wraps that all up in this one name. You see, when we recognize our Savior as the Alpha, we are confirming that he is the beginning of all things and the first among all things. There is none that come close to him, rival him in any way. Isaiah, he as a prophet said it well in Isaiah 44, 6, Thus saith the Lord King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. And beside me, there is no God. Priority. He is the Alpha. And I love it. He may not use the words the beginning and end, the Alpha and Omega, but that's what exactly what he says through Isaiah. I am the first and the last. There's no one that rivals me. Last but not least, that second part of this couplet of a name is Omega. We ask, what is the significance of Christ's claim? The word here is telos, and so he is the telos, the end. Uh, this means that he is the end goal or objective. He is the perfecter, the finisher. He is the one who will, and I like this, terminate all things. In First Peter chapter number 4, he says and writes, the end of all things is at hand. He then elaborates, what is that end? And he says judgment. Who is the judge? He says Jesus Christ is coming to judge. He will bring this world and this culture, as we know it, to an end. He will terminate it. The promise in Revelation is that the old earth and the old heavens will, will melt away. They will be gone. God, Jesus Christ, will terminate it. He is the end. But for those of us who trust in him, boy, that end is the objective, isn't it? The goal. We desire to spend all eternity with him. He's also the telos, the finisher of our faith. He is the end of our faith, as the Bible says. He's the consummation of our faith. He is our salvation. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says what? He is the author and finisher of our faith. The completer. The culmination is what that word means. He is, he is it. When we think of our salvation, when we stand in his presence, and we join him for all of eternity, the end has arrived. He is the end. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and he is the last. That is the second part. When we read here in verse 13, it says the first and the last. It is a, uh, excuse me, a Greek word you would recognize, at least in its root. When it says he is the last, he is the eschatos, eschatology. What does that describe? The end times, the last times, as we might describe it. And so when we, he is described as such, he is the embodiment of finality. Could we just put it in our, I don't know, common speech the reality is this he alone gets the last word just as he is the first of all things he, he was here before everything he is the last of all things 
in modern terms, too, we could say that Jesus Christ is the last one standing. He is the end. He is the last. He embodies the finality. There's nothing after him. There is no next court of appeals. There's nobody else to appeal to. He is the end all to end all, is what this omega says. Oh, yes, they're the beginning and the, the end of the, the Greek alphabet, the, the letters and so forth. The alpha and omega, the beginning and end. You see, when Christ walked this earth, he would talk about, yeah, I, I, I was before Abraham. And boy, they couldn't handle that, let alone handle the idea that he is the end of all things too. But the day is coming. The end times are coming when our Lord Jesus Christ will simply be recognized as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end, the first and the last. And my friend, he will be worshipped as such. Today, Jesus Christ, for you and I, he is the Alpha and the Omega. I love to think of him as my great I am, and I love to think of the day where the world will see him for who he is, the Alpha and Omega. Boy, I sure am thankful for the names of our Lord, aren't you? Names of our God and all the comfort and encouragement and challenge we can derive from them. Brother Cliff, you'll bring those prayer requests as he does. Let me ask you to pray.